Hello, Volties, and welcome to Transmission Week here at Volts. It's been delayed almost as many times as Infrastructure Week, but it's finally here. All week, we're going to be digging into the U.S. Energy Transmission System. Just a quick note here for those of you who are listening rather than reading. These transmission posts are going to involve lots of charts and graphs and I will attempt to describe them as best I can but it might be nice to click over and have a look if you're interested. Okay, here we go. For those of you new to the subject, transmission system refers to the big high voltage power lines that carry electricity over long distances, usually perched along tall metal towers. To use a road analogy, transmission lines are like the interstate system, whereas lower voltage distribution systems are like the nests of highways and streets that serve local populations. I've always been fascinated by distribution systems, but I've never really taken a deep dive into the transmission side of things until now. And now that I have, I understand better than ever why I put it off for so long. It's complicated, y'all. There are lots and lots of acronyms, agencies, and obscure policies involved. It's not the sexiest stuff, but it's important. Transmission is one of the key tools to help decarbonize the country and also one of the biggest, most dangerous bottlenecks standing in the way. We probably can't decarbonize at the scale and speed we need without more of it. But laws, rules, and systems designed for a different century and a different electricity system are slowing it to a snail's pace. The entire transmission process badly needs attention and reform. And there are signs it may finally be getting some. There's bipartisan political support for it, along with support from big unions like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. I'm excited about transmission, says Fatima Ahmad, senior counsel for the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. I see jobs benefits, I see bipartisan interest, I see more and more climate policy advocates taking the time to get educated about these issues. All those things make me excited. This is just such a clear next step. So here's what we're going to do. Today, I'm going to try to convince you that transmission matters. We need more of it. We're not building it. Our decarbonization goals are at risk, but we're at a moment when real reform is possible. In the next post, we'll get into the weeds. Getting a transmission line built requires planning, financing, permitting, and siting. And right now, every single step of that process is dysfunctional and constipated. In each case, we'll look at what Biden can do through the agencies and what Congress can do to expedite the process. Expect acronyms. In the post after that, we'll look at a related issue, not how to build new transmission lines, but how to improve the existing transmission system with so-called grid-enhancing technologies. Get excited about topology optimization algorithms. And finally, 
we'll review what we've learned and contemplate the political landscape ahead. It's going to be so much fun. Headline one, why we need more transmission. I wrote about the need for more transmission over at Vox several times if you really want to dig in, but here's a quick review of the top reasons. Reason one, we need more transmission to decarbonize. A group of researchers at Princeton recently did some comprehensive modeling of U.S. decarbonization scenarios. Of the scenarios that achieved net zero, the one with the least new transmission, the RE minus scenario, which includes lots of nuclear power and natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration, doubles U.S. transmission capacity by 2050. In the more renewables heavy scenario, E plus, transmission triples. Modeling from Dr. Christopher Clack at Vibrant Clean Energy has produced similar results as have many other studies. If the U.S. wants to decarbonize at all, it's going to have to build the shit out of some new transmission. Reason two, we need a national grid anyway. Despite my road analogy above, the U.S. transmission system is different from the interstate system in one important way. We have a true national interstate network. No matter where you are in the system, you can drive to anywhere else in the system. The U.S. does not have a true national energy network. Instead, functionally speaking, it has three transmission grids, the Eastern Interconnection, the Western Interconnection, and ERCOT, a Texas grid, basically. Though there are a few small ties between them, very little energy is exchanged. They mostly operate in isolation. Here I have a map of the three grids. As you can see, the Eastern Interconnection is divided up among several functional transmission regions, but they are all connected to a common physical grid. This situation is goofy. Linking these grids together with high voltage direct current HVDC lines, i.e. creating a true national energy network, would allow them to share exporting energy when they have oversupply or importing it when supply is stretched. Early morning solar in Arizona could go to New York at the peak of its afternoon demand. Evening wind power in North Dakota could go to California when everyone is turning on their big screen TVs. Generally, with grids, the bigger and more interconnected they are, the more efficient, reliable, and cost-effective they are. To wit, a 2016 study by scientists at NOAA found that a national HVDC network would save U.S. consumers $47 billion annually. The Interconnections SEAM study by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, a study the Trump administration tried to squash, found that every dollar invested in a national HVDC grid would return 250 in economic, environmental, and social benefits. A national grid with the appropriate cybersecurity and resilience measures would allow the U.S to make the best possible use of its domestic clean energy resources. It is a no-brainer. By the by, 
China is in the midst of plowing $26 billion into a national network of ultra-high voltage lines, UHVDC, to carry renewable energy across the country. Reason three, we need to connect remote renewables to population centers. The areas in the U.S. where sunlight and wind are most intense, the desert southwest and the Midwest corridor respectively, are distant from the metropolitan areas, mostly along the coasts, where there is most demand. To make use of that remote renewable energy, we need transmission lines much longer than most that were built in the age of fossil fuel electricity, when plants could be built close by. Those long HVDC lines will require sophisticated new technologies and unfamiliar planning processes. Right now, we're stuck in a chicken and egg problem. Renewable energy developers are hesitant to build, not knowing whether they'll be forced to pay for new expensive lines. Transmission developers are hesitant to build, not knowing whether there will be generators to fill their lines. Someone, spoiler, the federal government, needs to come in and break the logjam to get things moving. There's a huge pool of clean domestic American energy waiting to be tapped. Reason four, we need to prepare for clean electrification. Among today's U.S. energy wonks, it is now fairly widely agreed that the fastest, cheapest, and possibly only route to large-scale near-term decarbonization is through clean electrification. That means first and foremost transitioning the grid to net zero carbon, but it also means shifting most transportation and heating and cooling off of liquid fossil fuels and onto electricity. Large-scale electrification will dramatically increase demand for electricity, close to 40 percent by 2050, by some estimates. It will also change the location and timing of energy demand in ways that will change where and when the grid is stressed. A plan to decarbonize the U.S. must involve looking forward, anticipating those changes, and planning the transmission system around them. Reason number five, we need to relieve grid congestion. Even transmission lines of modest length can help relieve congestion in regional grids and make them more efficient and cost-effective. Currently, congestion is a major problem and is creating a nightmare for new renewable energy projects in some regions. A recent report from Americans for a Clean Energy Grid found that, quote, at the end of 2019, 734 gigawatts of proposed generation, 90% of which our new wind, solar, and storage projects were waiting in interconnection queues nationwide. Not all of that proposed generation would be built, even in the best of circumstances, but it's still an enormous backlog of projects waiting to connect. Here is a map of grid congestion in the territory covered by the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, or MISO. The areas in orange and red are already overloaded as of 2018. And here is a map showing most of the upper Midwest congested. 
A recent analysis by the Natural Resources Defense Council's Sustainable FERC Project, well covered by Carrie Leiterson from Midwest Energy News, found that, quote, 245 clean energy projects that had reached advanced stages of development were withdrawn between January 2016 and July 2020, mainly due to grid congestion and the resulting high costs of grid upgrades. That's an enormous amount of clean energy and work on the part of renewable energy developers down the drain. The graph below shows the amount of different kinds of energy waiting in interconnection queues from 2014 to 2019. As you can see, both solar and wind are spiking. We've got more and more clean energy just waiting around to start sending electrons. Unclogging those queues requires, among other things, building more transmission. Remember that study by the NOAA scientists? It also found that a national energy grid would allow the integration of 523 gigawatts of new wind and 371 gigawatts of new solar. U.S. total electrical capacity is around 1,200 gigawatts, so those are not small amounts. So, new transmission would help integrate renewable energy, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce electricity costs, and relieve congestion. It's national infrastructure that creates jobs and repays upfront investment many times over. We can't hit our national decarbonization goals without it. It is good. We should build more of it. Headline 2. State and local resistance is constipating the national energy grid. I'll go into this in more detail in the next post, but the root of the problem for transmission in the U.S. is local resistance. For natural gas, the federal government can step in, permit a pipeline, and seize land via eminent domain. It does not have that authority when it comes to transmission lines, except in some special cases, which we'll get into next post. In the U.S., transmission siting is controlled by states. The process is a bureaucratic marathon subject to parochial objections and ridden with veto points at every stage. That's why, even as the consensus around the need for new national transmission has been strengthening for decades, the U.S. has continued not building much. We have been underinvesting in transmission for decades. Texas broke the mold by building a bunch of transmission to connect renewables through its Competitive Renewable Energy Zones, or CRES, program in the 2010s, but the rest of the country hasn't followed suit. Some shorter local lines are getting built, some lines that are underwater and thus free of local landowners, but in terms of long-distance, high-voltage lines, there's been basically bupkis. In his book Superpower, journalist Russell Gold tells the story of Houston entrepreneur Michael Skelly and his company Clean Line Energy Partners, which had grand plans to build a national network of HVDC transmission lines, plans that were largely frustrated. 
And so, overall, the U.S. transmission system is as janky and outdated as the rest of its infrastructure. There are some positive signs, though. Biden is choosing smart people to lead the agencies that will have a hand in transmission. There's broad public and political appetite for Green New Deal-style infrastructure spending. And advocates have begun a coordinated push to get the issue some attention. See, for example, the Macro Grid Initiative, a co-production of the American Council on Renewable Energy and Americans for a Clean Energy Grid. In its recent comprehensive report, the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis included a whole detailed section on, quote, moving toward a national supergrid. The top recommendation in all the reports I've read is simply that transmission be made a national priority. The president needs to affirm via executive order and preferably Congress by legislation that federal agencies will cooperate to develop and implement a comprehensive plan for a national transmission grid. That's the big picture. On our next episode of Volts, we'll dig into the specifics of what Congress can do and what Biden can do without Congress to get the process of building a national energy grid unconstipated. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. In my previous post, I explained why the U.S. needs lots of new high-voltage power lines. They will help stitch together America's balkanized grids, connect remote renewable energy to urban load centers, prepare the country for the coming wave of electrification, and relieve grid congestion. And, oh yeah, we won't be able to decarbonize the country without them. Nonetheless, they are not getting built. It's a problem. Today, we are going to walk step-by-step through the process and show why they are not getting built. At each stage, we'll look at what Congress can do and what Biden can do without Congress's help to get the process moving. This is some wonky stuff, but I've tried to keep it as simple as possible. Here at the top of the post, I have a section on transmission-related acronyms. I'm not going to read it aloud here because it would be crushingly boring. I will just note a few of the basics. An IOU is an investor-owned utility. So basically a utility that makes its profits by investing in infrastructure and then receiving a guaranteed rate of return. An RTO is a regional transmission organization that runs transmission in a given territory and oversees wholesale power markets in that territory. An ISO is an independent system operator, which is, for all intents and purposes, the same thing as an RTO. 
And FERC, of course, is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is the federal agency that oversees interstate transmission and sale of bulk electricity and natural gas. So FERC oversees RTOs. RTOs are composed of IOUs. IOUs can own either generation or transmission. And that, I think, is all the acronyms. You really need to understand this, and with that, we'll get on with it. So let's get to it. Headline one. There's still not much interregional, much less national, transmission planning. For most of the history of the U.S. electricity system, up to the 1990s, almost all utilities were vertically integrated, meaning they owned the whole electricity value chain in a given territory, from generators to transmission and distribution. They built large central station power plants close by to population centers and then ran transmission lines out to them. There was neither much need nor much appetite for building longer regional or interregional lines. Over all that time, states developed a persistently parochial lens and tight control over transmission planning. Two things have changed in recent decades. One, renewable energy expanded rapidly and got really cheap which is why solar and wind are the fastest growing sources of new electricity capacity. However, as we saw in the previous post, the most intense sun and wind in the U.S. are distant from population centers. This suggests the need for a wider scope of planning. Two, a wave of reforms in the 1990s and 2000s led to restructuring in regions containing around half the nation's electricity ratepayers. Vertically integrated utilities were broken up. Generation owners were separated from transmission owners and both were separated from distribution system operators, i.e. the local utility that sends you a power bill. Transmission planning in these restructured regions was given over to RTOs and ISOs, aka regional transmission organizations and independent system operators, which are, for all intents and purposes, the same thing. This suggests there ought to be capacity for a wider scope of planning. Indeed, FERC has acknowledged the need for larger-scale regional and interregional transmission planning for decades and attempted to make it happen through Orders 888 in 1996, 2000 in 1999, 890 in 2007, and 1000 in 2011. I won't get into all those orders other than to note that Order 2000 in 1999 created RTOs, membership in which was voluntary for utilities, and was explicitly meant to encourage, though not mandate, broader regional transmission planning. Part of the idea was to create competitive regional markets for transmission, similar to wholesale markets for generation, in which merchant, i.e. non-utility, projects would compete 
on a level playing field with IOU projects. As Ari Pesco of the Harvard Electricity Law Initiative writes in a recent paper, quote, FERC was optimistic that the IOU's central planning development model would be replaced by, quote, well-defined transmission rights and efficient price signals, unquote, that would facilitate market-driven expansion, unquote. When it didn't quite work out that way, once again, in Order 1000, FERC, quote, employed several mechanisms to pry control over regional transmission development from IOUs and break the IOU-by-IOU IOU planning model, PESCO writes. The general consensus is that despite its best efforts, FERC has failed to bring IOUs to heel and produce truly regional transmission planning and markets. Local IOU transmission plans still serve as the foundation for regional planning. There is still virtually no transmission built through competitive bidding. In practice, IOUs still build virtually all the lines in and between their territories and have deliberately made it difficult for merchant transmission projects to get cited and financed. IOUs have engaged in a, quote, shift away from regional projects, which must be developed competitively, to smaller or supposedly time-sensitive projects that IOUs build with little oversight and without competitive pressures, unquote, PESCO writes, and RTOs have implicitly or explicitly supported them in this shift. These local IOU processes are often opaque, closed to journalists and public interest groups, but the broad shift is clear. PJM, for instance, has tripled spending on local transmission projects since Order 1000 was issued. In MISO, spending on regional projects shrank from nearly $6 billion to just $300 million from 2014 to 2019. Not a single transmission project in New York ISO has been built on the basis of regional benefits since FERC established the process in 2008. A Brattle Group analysis found that between 2013 and 2017, 97% of the transmission approved by RTOs was not subject to a competitive process. Local transmission and reconstruction of aging facilities still receive the bulk of investment. One problem is IOUs are not mandated to be part of RTOs, so they can threaten to withdraw their assets from RTOs at any point. That gives them undue leverage. RTOs are loath to cross them. And so most transmission planning remains largely parochial. RTOs remain dominated by their members and predisposed to accept plans driven by local benefits. There are virtually no planning processes that take into account the changing energy mix or public purposes like integrating renewables or reducing greenhouse gases, and virtually no lines are being planned between regions. Subhead 1. What Biden Can Do Biden's FERC will start off with a 3-2 to two Republican majority. 
current Democratic Commissioner Richard Glick, a solid supporter of decarbonization, has been made head of the commission, and Democrat Allison Clements, who is also extraordinary, was sworn in in December. In June, an additional vacancy will open up and Biden will achieve a majority, which will be significant on a commission increasingly issuing partisan split rulings on things like oil and gas pipelines and uh, the moper. Don't ask. With a climate hawk majority, FERC could issue a stronger order mandating membership in RTOs and participation in regional planning. It could instruct RTOs and states to take into account the changing resource mix, the need for decarbonization, rising and shifting demand from electrification, and the benefits of interregional transmission. MISO's multi-value project process is often cited as a model here. FERC could also mandate that transmission planning take a broader view of reliability, resilience, and cost-effectiveness to replace the siloed state-by-state -state way they are assessed today. It could also work with DOE and other agencies to develop a true national transmission plan with an eye toward national policy goals from which regional organizations could take their cue. And as PESCO advocates, FERC could more closely scrutinize the local transmission planning processes now run, parochially and with very little supervision, by IOUs. Specifically, it could, quote, reverse its long-standing policy of presuming that all transmission expenses are prudent and replace it with a presumption that only capital expenditures committed pursuant to an independently administered planning process are presumed prudent, unquote. In other words, shift the burden of proof to IOUs. Doing so would push IOUs to put more transmission planning in independent hands, and FERC could take additional steps to force IOUs to regularly divulge key information necessary for independent planning. Quote, in transmission operations, separating ownership from operational control allowed the industry to capture benefits of both coordination and competition. Pesco writes, separating ownership from control over planning could have similarly significant benefits by untethering planning from maintaining any IOU's state-granted advantages, unquote. One way or another, FERC has to wrestle control over transmission planning away from IOUs and give it to independent organizations that can assess the full range of benefits. Subhead 2, what Congress can do. Congress could pass legislation clarifying that it intends for FERC to fully regionalize and in some cases nationalize transmission planning by taking the steps above. The Democrats' Climate Leadership and Environmental Action for Our Nation's Future Act, aka the Clean Future Act, passed through the House this summer, contained language that would instruct FERC to issue a rulemaking to that effect. Congress could also allocate funding to DOE to ramp up its research on a macro grid, including resuming NREL's Interconnections SEAM study. 
It could also fund DOE to assist state and regional organizations in studying and implementing interregional planning and work out a transmission plan for offshore wind in the Northeast, which is currently beset by NIMBYs. Basically, the federal government needs to study and develop best practices for interregional planning and then require that IOUs, RTOs, and states actually use them. Much of that legislative legwork has already been done in the Interregional Transmission Planning Improvement Act of 2019, introduced by Senator Martin Heinrich. It was included in the House-passed Infrastructure Bill, H.R. 2, but not in the year-end package that passed both houses. All right, that's planning. Up next is financing. But first, we need a cuteness break. Here's my cute niece. And you will definitely want to click over to the post to see this picture of my cute niece. It is heartrending. Headline two. Financing transmission is unnecessarily difficult. The interconnection process, the process of connecting a new generator to the transmission network, is currently run by RTOs on a participant funding model, which means the project developer must pay for any grid upgrades or new lines required. This despite the fact that new lines create benefits in reliability, efficiency, and regulatory compliance that are spread statewide, even regionally. A recent report from Americans for a Clean Energy Grid compared participant funding to, quote, charging the next car to enter a congested highway for the cost of building a new lane, unquote. The process is currently a disaster. First, there's the free rider problem. No developer particularly wants to shoulder the costs for broadly distributed benefits. Second, no renewable energy project developer knows in advance whether their interconnection will require grid upgrades. When it does, they often drop out, which means the whole interconnection study and approval process starts all over again for the next project in the queue. Third, it's impossible to predict the location and size of power demand in five years, which is how long it takes to build transmission. And fourth, the one-at-a-time process foregoes opportunities to plan larger-scale, multi-line regional projects. These financing barriers, coupled with the risk and uncertainty of a long multi-stage regulatory process, serve to deter investment and keep costs unnecessarily high. Subhead 1, what Biden can do. What's needed is for the costs of new transmission to be spread out more evenly among the beneficiaries, beyond the members of the particular RTO in which the line is proposed. That's a highly technical undertaking in practice, so FERC could begin by soliciting solutions to this problem from RTOs and ISOs. But the process should result in a rule that forces cost allocation reforms. To speed things up, a FERC rule could also permit portfolio-based cost allocation, which allows RTOs to group projects together 
instead of running individual cost allocation studies for each. FERC could also apply more scrutiny and higher standards to local transmission investments, weighing them relative to regional projects that could provide the same benefits and more. Subhead 2, what Congress can do. Congress could pass legislation instructing FERC to prohibit the participant funding model and spread costs out more equitably. It could also implement tax incentives for transmission investment along the lines of tax credits for solar and wind. They could be tailored to encourage long-distance interregional lines. There are Democratic bills in both the House and Senate that contain provisions to this effect. Americans for a Clean Energy Grid has its own proposal. There's a whole wonky post to be written about how best to design these tax credits, but I will spare you. There are other ways Congress could pump money into transmission. Investment grants, direct funding for interregional projects, support for states involved in regional and interregional planning, and money to compensate communities affected by new transmission projects. The Department of Transportation issues what are called Transportation Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act loans, TIFIA loans, targeted at surface transportation infrastructure projects that are of regional or national significance. A similar loan program could be set up for transmission projects. Finally, Congress could reinvigorate America's Power Marketing Administrations, or PMAs, which operate in 33 states primarily to market and sell power from government-owned hydroelectric dams. As part of their operations, PMAs build and operate transmission. Congress could give them some money and a kick in the ass to get moving on more regional transmission. Okay, that's financing. Onward to permitting and siting. Headline 3. Permitting and siting are valleys of death for transmission. The Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and the Institute for Policy Integrity recently put out a report, forthwith, the report, on what Biden can do to boost transmission without help from Congress. It serves as a good backgrounder on the barriers to siting transmission projects. The key background condition is that the 1935 Federal Power Act gave FERC authority over transmission rates and facilities, but not over transmission siting. That authority remained, and remains, with states. Consequently, a power line that runs through more than one state must be approved by each state's public utility commission to act as a utility in that state, and it must secure a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity, a CPCN, from each state siting authority. Notably, the report says, quote, state law often directs state commissions to consider only the interests of in-state residents and businesses, unquote. In other words, the states that approve these projects are often prohibited from considering their broader benefits. It is a difficult and unpredictable process, fraught with veto points. 
The report elaborates, quote, Several factors make long-distance transmission projects fragile to opposition, and there is always opposition. Their long length means that these projects inevitably encounter numerous stakeholders, potentially including federal, state, tribal, and local government agencies from which they must seek authorization, as well as private property owners from whom they must acquire property rights. And like all linear projects, they are subject to holdups, meaning that a single stakeholder can prevent assembly of a complete right-of-way." Each state, in some cases each county or even each landowner, has veto power over the project. Each is thinking about the benefits to itself and has no incentive to consider broader regional or national benefits. Endless lawsuits and delays drive up the cost of capital and drive away even the most determined financiers. It's a virtually impassable set of barriers to long-distance transmission. It is worth noting, again, that total state control over transmission permitting and siting stands in stark contrast to the way natural gas lines are permitted and sited in the U.S. The Natural Gas Act grants the federal government exclusive authority to permit and site interstate natural gas pipelines and the power to use eminent domain to acquire rights-of-way. That streamlined federal approval process especially the profligate way in which FERC has applied it under a Republican majority, has been a boon to natural gas pipeline developers. Quote, FERC coordinates the process as a whole, has seldom rejected a pipeline proposal, and has generally managed to overcome state efforts to prevent pipeline development. The report writes, The situation is woefully inverted for interstate and interregional transmission projects, which can be blocked by any and every local interest and have no backstop federal authority. Subhead 1. What Biden can do. In Section 216 of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, Congress granted FERC limited authority to site transmission projects within National Interest Electric Transmission Corridors, NIETCs, designated by DOE. If and only if a state has unfairly refused to permit a project within one of these corridors, FERC can step in and provide backstop permitting and siting authority, including the use of eminent domain. DOE's initial effort to designate these corridors identified huge swaths of land which freaked out local lawmakers and landowners and the first attempts to exercise FERC's siting authority were shot down by federal courts, leading many observers to speculate that the authority will never be used, and indeed, since then, it has remained notional. No new corridors have been designated or lines built on their basis. The report argues that the authority still exists and that the specific rulings in the two court cases are not an insuperable barrier to action. Trump's DOE issued a preliminary ruling in September saying that no new corridors are needed, but it relied on the Trump administration's characteristically shoddy reasoning. Above all, it ignored future electricity demand. 
The comment period on that ruling is still open. Biden's DOE could revise the study to take in a broader interpretation of grid needs and constraints. It could quickly designate some corridors to get the ball rolling, but it could be more deft about it by working with FERC to target designations narrowly to support specific projects, reducing duplicative study and analysis, and freaking out fewer landowners. It could even delegate to FERC the authority to designate corridors, as recommended by the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis and others. And FERC could clarify its interpretation of its own backstop siting authority and when it plans to use it. Specifically, it could clarify that transmission projects that connect renewables to loads meet the criteria to receive a federal permit and that it will take a dim view of other state-imposed obstacles. Separately, Section 1222 of the Energy Policy Act authorizes federal-private partnerships on transmission projects. In theory, the report says, federal involvement, quote, both frees the transmission project from the requirements of state siting and public utility laws and provides a basis for the exercise of federal eminent domain authority. This is another case where there have been very few attempts to use the authority. Biden's DOE could deploy it by reinvigorating the PMAs, which could use Section 1222 authority to build transmission anywhere it's needed within their territories. Subhead 2, what Congress can do. All of this would be easier if Congress would pass legislation specifying the measures above, that DOE can delegate its authority over corridors to FERC, that access to renewables and future electrification should be criteria for designating corridors, that DOE and FERC should work together and create a single streamlined federal permitting process, and that FERC has real backstop authority to site transmission projects within those corridors. Ideally, the federal exercise of eminent domain won't be necessary. Congress could put money toward incentives for tribes, local governments, and states to revamp their permitting processes, perhaps accompanied by economic development grants to ease the process. Quote, you really don't want to have to use the backstop siting authority says Select Committee on the Climate Crisis Senior Counsel Fatima Ahmad. Quote, you want to start by allowing the developer to develop good relationships with the community before they pitch the designation of the corridor. Then you want to have some kind of economic incentives for the communities. And then the federal government can use its convening authority to bring together the states to work something out. So eminent domain really is a last resort. Unquote. In that same vein, Congress could put some money toward states and regional planners that are working to streamline siting. Money always helps move things along. Headline 4. Drawing some conclusions. Alright, this has been a long and wonky journey, friends, and I appreciate and respect all of you who made it this far. Let's try to sum things up. The basic problem with transmission is that we need a lot more of it in the U.S. if we want to electrify and decarbonize, but it remains prohibitively difficult and expensive to build. 
Mostly that's because the process is dominated at every stage by narrow parochial concerns. IOUs are looking inward. RTOs are looking inward. States are looking inward. The intense localism of the process produces dozens of opportunities for NIMBY opposition and few tools to overcome them. Politically speaking, it would be vastly easier to solve these problems with some clear legislation from Congress. As discussed here on Volts many times, a big climate bill is almost certainly not going to pass as long as the filibuster is in place. But that leaves open the possibility that some of this policy could sneak its way either into a budget reconciliation bill or one of the must-pass end-of-year funding bills. There's some precedent for these kinds of reforms getting bipartisan support. A few were tucked away in the energy bill that was tucked away in the spending bill that just passed Congress a few weeks ago. So there's some hope. But in the meantime, as I keep saying, Biden should use the powers of the executive branch aggressively. He should push the agencies to ease financing barriers, designate more corridors, permit more projects, and throw a little weight around on siting. These reforms are somewhat obscure and technical, but there is nothing obscure about the jobs new transmission would create or the enormous economic, social, and environmental benefits it would generate. It is right in Biden's wheelhouse. He should go for it. Headline 5, coming up next in Transmission Weeks. Remember how I said there would be four posts in Transmission Week Turns out that was a lie. There are going to be five, and there might be two transmission weeks. In my next post, shorter, easier, and more fun than this one, I promise, I'll have a look at two clever ideas for how to build a national transmission grid without the siting hassles. I don't want to get all clickbaity on you, but it will involve both trains and lasers. See you then. Thanks for listening, y'all. previous post, I described the many difficulties facing new high-voltage, long-distance transmission projects. From planning, to financing, to permitting and siting, it's a bureaucratic slog. Today we're going to look at a clever idea for bypassing many of those problems, namely stitching together a national power grid by burying power lines along existing rail and road infrastructure where rights-of-way are already established, thus eliminating the endless haggling with local governments and landowners. The idea has been gaining steam in the policy community for the last few years. FERC issued a report in June on challenges to transmission, 
Siting along existing infrastructure was cited as a promising solution. In his Build Back Better plan, Biden promised to, quote, take advantage of existing rights of way along roads and railways to cut red tape to promote faster and easier transmission permitting. This op-ed in The Hill sums up the benefits quite nicely, both of a national grid and of building it without siting battles. The vision is taking hold, and at least one small piece of that vision has gone beyond speculation into an actual permitting process. Headline 1. The Sioux Green Line will carry Iowa wind power to Chicago. A company called Direct Connect is currently in the development and permitting phase of a privately financed $2.5 billion project called the Sioux Green HVDC Link, a proposed 349-mile, 2.1-gigawatt, 525-kilovolt transmission line to run underground along existing railroad from Mason City, Iowa to the Chicago, Illinois area. It aims to go into operation in 2024. Going underground will allow the line to minimize environmental and visual impact. It will be much more resilient than an overhead line against weather, temperature shifts, sabotage, or squirrels. Two side-by-side -side cables will run through tubes of cross-linked polyethylene, or XLPE as it's known, and will be self-contained, lightweight, and easy to handle. They won't get hot, interfere with signaling equipment, or affect rail operations. There are fiber optic sensors along the lines to monitor sound and heat for any problems. Running alongside the railroad means Sioux Green will have no need to claim land via eminent domain. Almost all of that railroad is owned by Canadian Pacific, one of seven large Class I railroads in the U.S., so there are a tractable number of parties to deal with. A deal like this offers railroads a new passive revenue stream. Royalty fees well exceed what they get from similarly buried fiber optic lines, of which there are more than 100,000 miles along U.S. railroads. And it's also a chance for railroads to be part of a positive sustainability story. The project is privately funded, so there will be no need for any complicated cost allocation formulas. Financiers, including Siemens, which very rarely puts direct capital in transmission projects, will make their money back from those who use the line. The suppliers that put power on it, the shippers that sell power across it, and the buyers that consume the power through competitive bidding for capacity. Sue Green is holding an open solicitation right now to allocate its 2,100 megawatts among them. The aim is to create a more robust energy market by, for the first time, connecting the MISO and PJM territories. MISO and PJM are regional transmission organizations. See the previous post for details. Wind power projects are backed up in MISO, waiting to connect, stymied by grid congestion. Meanwhile, next-door neighbor PJM is the largest liquid energy market in the world. The idea is that Sioux Green will unlock renewable energy development in MISO. Direct Connect projects four to six new gigawatts. That energy will be transported to population centers in PJM, easing grid congestion reducing the carbon intensity of the East Coast energy mix 
and lowering power prices. The connection will also allow MISO and PJM to share reserves for the first time, which could reduce the need for reserve capacity, increase reliability, and save consumers money. Because the MISO side will be drawing from such a geographically broad region, it is likely to be in use almost continuously. Quote, when the wind isn't blowing in North Dakota, it likely is in Minnesota, unquote. Trey Ward, the CEO of Direct Connect, told me, quote, we anticipate upwards of 90% line utilization. It's as if we teleported a 2100 megawatt wind turbine with a 90% capacity factor from Iowa into suburban Chicago, he says. In fact, the converter station in PJM has applied to be treated as a capacity source in that market. That will require some updating of regulations. The converter stations at each end of the line are worth looking at more closely. They will use the latest generation of voltage source converters, or VSCs, to exchange power between the HVDC line and the regional high voltage alternating current, or HVAC, systems that are already in place in MISO and PJM. VSC technology has been around since the late 1990s, but it has only recently gotten efficient, compact, and cheap enough to compete against the thyristors, or solid-state valves, in common use today on HVDC lines. VSC boasts several important advantages. Thyristors need strong AC systems on both sides of the line. They require power filtering, and they have limited control over reactive power. Do not ask me or anyone else what reactive power is. That way lies madness. VSCs, on the other hand, are self-commutated converters, which means they can generate AC voltages using capacitors without relying on an AC system. They can control power independently, even with a weak AC system or no AC current at all. They can black start a grid from blackout automatically without any workers out there throwing switches. VSCs allow precise and instantaneous bi-directional control of both active and reactive power. They can provide services to the grid other than just energy, things like voltage and frequency regulation or synthetic inertia to support grid stability. Quote, you can go from 0 to 2100 megawatts in one one-hundredth of a second and back down again just as fast, says Ward. It will be the fastest, most dynamic resource on the North American grid, unquote. Power electronics experts have been claiming for years that VSCs would eventually replace thyristors in HVDC projects. We're in a race with Germany, Ward says. If built, Sue Green would be a big step toward making it finally happen, the first deployment of VSCs at this scale in the world. The main thing these VSC stations will do is serve as regional energy hubs, accepting gigawatts of energy from, or dispensing it to, existing HVAC grids. Energy users that require a large, reliable supply of high-quality electricity, like data centers or technology parks, perhaps ensconced in microgrids, can co-locate with the hubs to take advantage of their high-quality power control, thus spurring more economic development. Direct Connect estimates that the Sioux Green project will create 2,000 temporary construction jobs, unlock more than 4,000 jobs in renewable energy development, 
generate more than $2.7 billion in economic development in the two states and yield more than $3.75 billion in ratepayer savings over 20 years. We shouldn't exaggerate how easy things will be for Sue Green. It won't be completely free of siting hassles, and there are costs outside its control. The X factor here is the cost of copper for the lines themselves. If it spikes for some reason, Sue Green will be in some trouble. But its costs will be much more predictable than the typical overhead lines. It knows its exact route from the beginning, and because digging ditches is a pretty cheap and well-established technology, 80% of its construction costs will be for equipment. Things might be trickier for the next rail transmission project. Sioux Green is exploiting ideal conditions, a low-use railroad with well-characterized geology connecting an energy-producing region with an energy-consuming one. Future projects could face more physical and economic challenges. At some point, there will be projects that don't pencil out for private capital but are needed to link the lines together into a national grid, then public money may have to step in. But private capital can do a lot. Ward mentions two federal policies that could help. One is a federal investment tax credit, like the one Renewable Energy receives, to defray the cost of investment, especially for early and pioneering projects. More details on that in the previous post as well. The other is some kind of manufacturing tax credit to spur more U.S. companies to manufacture the kind of lines that Direct Connect needs, which it is currently buying overseas. Even without those policies, though, things are more or less on track, haha, for Sue Green. If things go well for the project, no sure thing given America's history with transmission, it could serve as a template for new HVDC backbones along other sections of the elaborate U.S. rail network. Ward estimates that as few as a half dozen such lines would completely transform the U.S. electricity system and spark billions of dollars of renewable energy development. Direct Connect is in talks with all of the Class 1 railroads. An aside, as long as we're talking about electricity and railroads, you should check out Solutionary Rail, a plan to run overhead catenary electricity lines along the nation's rail lines and electrify rail freight in the process. Anyway, to date, there are no HVDC lines being planned along roads or highways, in part because state departments of transportation are always thinking about adding lanes, in which case the lines would have to be moved but it's also because developers still have an inflated sense of the cost of undergrounding lines. The news hasn't widely spread that modern lines require less conducting metal, horizontal drilling has been perfected by natural gas frackers, and inverter stations are as little as 25% the size they used to be. Here's what Dr. Christopher Clack, an energy modeler at Vibrant Clean Energy, told me. Quote, Data that I was provided from Tier 1 transmission vendors shows that the cost of underground HVDC transmission has a similar price point to the same overhead capacity of HVAC when the transmission line is over approximately 250 miles. This includes the cost to build inverter and rectifier stations at each end." Unquote. 
And of course, the sticker price of building overhead lines does not include the unpredictable expenses of regulatory hassles and intransigent landowners. A line cannot be cheap if it never gets built. In terms of long-distance transmission, underground HVDC is now the smart choice. But there's one other step planners and developers can take to bypass conventional transmission hassles. Headline 2, a national grid made of two state pieces. Vibrant is currently working on a detailed modeling exercise showing how the U.S. can decarbonize by 2050. The modeling, like much other modeling before it, shows that a national HVDC network is desperately needed for decarbonization. But Vibrant is aware of the difficulty of siting lines that cross multiple states. So it came up with a way to create a national network that is comprised entirely of lines that only bridge two states. Each one originates in one state and terminates in a neighboring state. And every one of the major HVDC trunk lines is underground, running along rail or road infrastructure. And here in the post is a map showing where these lines would go and how they would all connect up. The two state pieces are like Legos from which a national grid can be built. Quote, you can get energy from Colorado to Chicago, Clack told me, but you have to go through five rectifier stations. It's the same as having one line, unquote. Building the system this way does come at some additional cost, since the VSC stations at the terminus of each line are expensive, and this would involve building more of them. And since each conversion of energy loses a little bit, all the additional conversions would add up to about a half a percent more line loss. But the advantage of this approach is that, quote, each line is just a contract between two states, Clack says. Quote, you would never have a flyover state, and you would never have a state that wouldn't get access to the market, unquote. Each participating state would have one or more energy hubs and all the advantages economic development, less grid congestion, lower energy prices that they bring. The end result would be a functioning national energy grid. Clever. Headline three, let's do this. A national energy grid composed of underground HVDC lines running along existing rail and road infrastructure with VSC stations in every state is an absolute home run of an idea. It ticks every conceivable box. It's economic development, jobs, clean energy, lower prices, and most of all, an ambitious national project that we can accomplish red and blue states together to regain some of America's lost mojo. What's more, transmission hasn't yet fallen under the shadow of partisanship, unlike everything else. There is bipartisan appetite for infrastructure spending and for unlocking the domestic renewable energy that is often concentrated in red states and needed in blue ones. An underground national HBDC network would create thousands of jobs and bring hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of new economic development to every single U.S. state. It would save every American money on their power bills. It would bring national decarbonization within reach. It would literally do what Biden promised, bring people together. We should build it. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.
Welcome back to Volts, where every week is Transmission Week. In my three transmission posts so far, I have focused mostly on the challenges of building new long-distance energy transmission lines in the U.S. The poor planning, the inefficient financing, the permitting and siting hassles. Today I'm going to turn to a different subject, the various ways that the performance of the existing transmission system could be upgraded and improved through so-called grid-enhancing technologies, or GETs, as I will be calling them. To be honest, I probably should have tackled this subject first. Though new lines are going to be needed regardless, it is faster and cheaper to upgrade the existing system with fewer regulatory barriers. GETs can achieve short-term relief from grid congestion while new lines are being developed. There are three technologies that are typically classified as GETs, and I will focus on them in this post. In my next post, I'll cover a couple of extra options that I haven't found any other way to fit in. So let's jump in. I should note here up top that I will be drawing heavily from a 2019 Brattle Group report on GETs. Headline one, closer monitoring to improve line performance. When electricity passes through transmission lines, they heat up. As they heat up, they sag. If too much electricity is run through a line, it can exceed its maximum operating temperature or sag to the point that it brushes up against trees or other structures, potentially sparking fires. Grid operators want to avoid that, so they do not load lines to their full rated capacity. They set an operational limit well below theoretical capacity to create a safety margin. But how far below capacity should the limit be set? That is the question. The heat and sag of a given line are changing in subtle ways all the time. They vary with the ambient temperature, humidity, barometric pressure, and wind speed. If it's warmer, the line will heat up faster. If there's a breeze, it will heat up more slowly. Because the heat and sag are in constant flux, so too is the maximum safe capacity of the line. Quote, the number we love to quote is, an increase in wind blowing across a power line of 3 feet per second results in a 44% increase in the capacity of that power line, says Jonathan Marmillo, co-founder of Line Vision, a company that makes equipment for monitoring lines. Quote, that's the equivalent of a light breeze, unquote. Side note, this means that the capacity of transmission lines increases as the production of wind energy increases, which is handy. But transmission system operators do not generally have that kind of real-time information about the heat and sag of their lines. They are forced to estimate to use an average in some cases, they assign a line a single static rating, well below full capacity. In some cases, they assign the lines seasonal ratings, adjusting for seasonal conditions. These estimates are necessarily conservative. As a result, quote, most transmission lines are loaded 
at 40 or even 30% of their rated capacity, says Marmillo. That's an enormous amount of usable capacity going unused to hedge against the lack of information. That has changed with the development of dynamic line ratings, or DLRs, whereby lines are continuously monitored and their capacity continuously updated. DLRs have been around for a couple of decades, but the first generations of devices were cumbersome. They were installed directly on the power lines, which involved taking the lines out of commission, and proved unreliable in operation. Technology marches on, though, and the latest generation of DLRs is vastly improved. LineVision's DLR devices, for instance, have no contact installation, which means no messing with the lines. They attach to the transmission tower. They are topped with LiDAR, the same technology used by autonomous vehicles, which gathers fine-grained data that is then crunched to determine the net effective perpendicular wind speed, which turns out to be the most important variable for determining line temperature. Quote, we essentially use the conductor as a giant hot wire anemometer, says Marmillo. Of course, if you abandon averages in favor of real-time measurement, sometimes capacity will be below what the static average would have indicated. But, quote, we see capacity above static ratings about 97% of the time, says Marmillo. It turns out those static ratings are extremely conservative. Allowing more power to travel through lines relieves grid congestion, which is valuable to grid operators. Marmillo says a recent installation of LineVision's device on a PJM line paid itself back in three months. DLRs are particularly cheap if you compare them to more dramatic solutions to grid congestion. Quote, the cost of deploying a DLR system on a transmission line, says Marmillo, quote, is less than 5% the unit cost of reconstructing or rebuilding the line, unquote. Note here, there's an open FERC proposal on the subject of line ratings in which the Commission plans to require seasonal line ratings within two years and for RTOs and ISOs to put in place systems that are prepared for DLRs within a year. So that's technology one. DLRs to better understand and exploit the real-time capacity of existing lines. Headline 2. Controlling the flow of electricity to ease congestion. The Brattle report says, quote, power flow through an AC line is proportional to the sign of the difference in the phase angle of the voltage between the transmitting end and the receiving end of the line. And I'll just go ahead and trust them on that. Left uncontrolled, power will simply cascade through the system according to Kirchhoff's laws but it is useful for grid operators to be able to route power away from congested areas and toward less congested areas. To do that, they need flow control devices. The first kind are special transformers called phase angle regulators, or PARs, 
that directly manipulate the phase angle to control the flow of power. They are well known and accepted in the industry, but they are expensive to the tune of millions of dollars a year, which has limited their deployment to a select few high traffic lines. Plus, the accelerating pace of change in the electricity system has made their size and inflexibility more problematic. Quote, these are 40 plus year fixed assets says Jenny Irwin, marketing director for SmartWires, Inc., a company that makes flow control devices. And these days, quote, it's just much harder to plan out what you need 40 years from now, unquote. The other family of flow control devices are flexible alternating current transmission systems, or FACs, which are generally power electronics devices that control the flow of power through a line or voltage on a system by, for example, increasing or decreasing reactants on a line. Older versions of FACs were also quite large and expensive, but due to advances in electronics and control software, they have been made much smaller and more modular. Quote, what used to be done with copper and steel, Irwin says, we are able to do with silicon and software." Unquote. Now, reports Brattle, facts, quote, typically cost significantly less than PARs, can be manufactured and installed in a shorter time, are scalable, and in many cases are available in mobile form that can be easily redeployed. Smart wires, a California company that's been around since 2010 is currently the only company making these modular facts. Several studies have found that facts create value by easing grid congestion and deferring transmission system investments. For example, Brattle summarizes the results of a 2018 study from the Electric Power Research Institute, or EPRI. Quote, simulating the 2016 PJM system with 13 power flow control devices placed in optimal locations to reduce thermal overloads indicated annual production cost savings of $67 million. Considering the initial investment cost of $137 million, the payback period is roughly two years. The possibilities opened up by modular facts have only just begun being explored. Most deployments and studies have focused on individual lines, but as more and more lines become dispatchable, it stands to reason that there will be emergent system effects. It's one thing to have a dispatchable line. It's another to have a dispatchable grid. Irwin acknowledges that this is, in fact, SmartWire's long-term vision. We like to think about it as crawl, walk, and run, she says. And implementing a fully dispatchable grid, quote, would be running. The company is taking small steps in that direction in the UK, installing facts on several lines across a broad swath of territory and linking them up so that they communicate with one another. But she stresses that the comprehensive vision, quote, is not required to unlock value. You can extract meaningful value today because every new fax adds a degree of control and efficiency, unquote. For much more on this, see this technical report from EPRI and many other reports compiled by SmartWires. So that's technology two 
power electronics to control the flow of power across the grid. Headline 3. Reconfiguring the grid to route around congestion. The flow of energy through an electricity system is determined by the level of output of the generators, the level of consumption of the loads, and the topology, or physical configuration, of the transmission lines connecting them. There is already hardware deployed across the grid in the form of circuit breakers and communication systems that can, by switching open or closed, change that topology. Grid operators have long had switching procedures in place to reconfigure the grid as necessary to maintain reliability. But, quote, finding good reconfigurations is computationally challenging, says electrical engineer Pablo Ruiz, a consultant at Brattle, associate research professor at Boston University and co-founder of NewGrid, a grid software company spun off from an ARPA-E project. Traditionally, reconfigurations have been implemented on a limited, ad hoc basis, guided by operator experience. Recently, however, engineers have learned to calculate reconfigurations more quickly using software, thus the budding field of topology optimization. Ruiz draws an analogy with transportation. The old way of handling congestion was to raise tolls on the main roads, convincing drivers to stay home, or in the case of power, generators to curtail their output. Topology control software, Ruiz says, is like the navigation app Waze, showing drivers how they can route around congestion. That will mean less curtailment and less congestion. The software doesn't do the reconfiguring itself. That's still for the grid operator. Quote, the analogy with Waze is actually pretty accurate, Ruiz says. It's a decision support tool. This is not about self-driving cars. The operator is still the driver, unquote. Naturally, though, it makes me wonder about the possibility of self-driving grids, grids that route power optimally and automatically. Ruiz thinks something like that will eventually happen, but expects a long road of incremental advances in automation before then. Anyway, in the meantime, recent deployments of topology control software in the UK have shown that, quote, just by optimizing the configuration of the grid, you can increase grid capacity by, depending on system conditions, between 4 and 12 percent, Ruiz says. Quote, these are very large transfers, so if you can get 10% more with existing infrastructure without any new capital investment, that's a big deal, unquote. Studies by Brattle in the U.S. and National Grid in the U.K. have confirmed that topology optimization can relieve transmission constraints and save power consumers tens of millions of dollars annually. Quote, broad application of the technology for real-time and day-ahead congestion management support would reduce the cost of congestion by about 50%, he says. Even with the misaligned incentives of today's utilities, software investments, unlike infrastructure investments, do not receive a guaranteed rate of return. Ruiz thinks topology control will pencil out for them. 
It might reduce the need for some smaller transmission expansion projects, but it will relieve congestion on lower capacity lines by routing power to currently underutilized high capacity lines, thus improving the economics of those larger, more expensive projects. Topology control will also improve the business case for a national macro grid, since it can help ensure that every high voltage trunk line is fully utilized. So that's technology three, software to map out the best and most efficient configuration of the grid from day to day and hour to hour. Headline four, the extensive benefits of GETS. The Brattle report I mentioned at the top of the post recounts several examples of successful deployments of GETS. It estimates that wide deployment would produce benefits that rival the value of creating regional transmission organizations and competitive power markets. The benefits of GETS include not only relieving grid congestion, deferring new capital investments and saving ratepayers money, but also boosting reliability and resilience and generally improving system performance. The most interesting attempt to assess the full benefits of GETS comes in a forthcoming report prepared by Brattle for the Watt Coalition, a group of companies developing GETS. The study won't be released until February 24th, and unfortunately the folks at the Watt Coalition are too short-sighted to allow me to share the results in advance, grumble grumble. I can say, though, that it is a detailed engineering analysis focused on a single wind-rich, increasingly congested transmission region. It examines the effects of a full deployment of GETS across the region. Long story short, GETS double the amount of new renewables the regional grid is able to accommodate through 2025. Building enough new power lines to do that would be wildly expensive and take decades. GETS do it almost immediately, with an investment that pays itself back in about six months. It also creates jobs, reduces carbon emissions, and saves the region money. In terms of the clean energy transition, GETS are an easy win. A quick way to bring more renewables online and reduce emissions while also helpfully saving money. Utilities just need to do it. Headline 5. Making utilities want to get GETS. The core problem for GETS is the same problem I have been identifying for years. The incentive system in which U.S. energy utilities operate. They do not make money by selling electricity or by providing superior service. They make money by receiving a guaranteed rate of return on capital investments. Naturally, they want to make more capital investments. If a technology comes along, energy efficiency, distributed energy resources, or gets that promises to defer or even head off the need to make new capital investments, the utility's profits are directly threatened. All those technologies may serve the public's social, economic, and environmental goals, but they do not serve the utility's financial interests. 
even when utilities do not face a disincentive to improve their operational performance, they have no positive incentive, no reason to set aside money and resources. The costs of congestion and interconnection backups are simply passed along to ratepayers. Everyone in clean energy is aware of this basic incentives mismatch. Quote, it's really an incentives issue, says Irwin. Quote, Clearly there is a misalignment in incentives, says Ruiz. Quote, There's no question about it. Unquote. Consequently, deployment of GETS remains confined to a few demonstration projects. Brattle summarizes. Quote, the slow pace of adoption of these new technology options may largely be driven by two factors. First, the technology options by themselves are not being recognized enough for their capabilities. Second, there is insufficient incentive for either the transmission operators or owners, the two market players who are best suited to adopt these technologies, to innovate and change their operations, which requires a concerted effort. Unquote. Reforming U.S. utilities is a mountainous task, and nobody has time to wait around on it. In the meantime, the best that can be done is to create incentives where they are now lacking. FERC can do so by mandating that utilities and RTOs examine alternatives to new transmission, upgrades to the existing system, in transmission and operational planning processes. It can implement new rules that reward utilities for meeting performance metrics, so-called performance-based regulation, as is common in the UK and Australia. It can encourage benefit sharing and cost sharing among transmission owners and other market participants, both sharing congestion costs and spreading out the benefits of new gets and FERC could push utilities to subject new GETS projects to competitive bidding. A group of 13 senators recently wrote a letter to FERC asking that it take these steps to encourage GETS. Congress could help by offering tax credits or other financial incentives to utilities to improve existing transmission systems with GETS. Money is the best incentive of all. And maybe someday we could think about reforming utilities root and branch to once and for all align their incentives with pro-social behavior. A felican dream. Headline 6. Gets are part of the digitization of energy. One of my pet theories, which I first wrote about in 2016, is that Vaclav Smil is wrong. Smill is a venerable energy analyst famous for throwing cold water on all the talk of a rapid transition to clean energy. He points out that previous energy transitions have taken more like a century than a decade. One reason I think the clean energy transition will move faster is that it is not merely a transition from one set of physical energy sources to another, though it is that too. It is also, in part, a transition from the physical to the digital. Where physical commodities generally get more expensive over time, computing power is consistently getting cheaper and cheaper. In area after area, engineers are figuring out how to substitute intelligence for stuff, i.e. 
computing power for commodities. Think, for instance, about solar trackers. Solar panel manufacturers used to experiment with a variety of shapes for panels to try to catch more of the sun's energy as it passes overhead. That manufacturing is expensive. Now panels can be mounted on trackers that automatically sense and follow the sun. So manufacturers mainly just make flat panels. The intelligence of the trackers has substituted for the stuff of the panels. Gets are another great example. The same physical grid can virtually double its capacity through the combined application of GETs, better sensing, better calculating, and better control. Rather than make twice as much grid, we can make a grid twice as smart. Intelligence for stuff. Inevitably, as the costs of sensors, chips, and computing power continue to decline, we are going to infuse them into all our infrastructure, transportation, buildings, and power. We are going to get more performance out of our existing capital stock through the application of intelligence. Once progress is hitched to computing power, the clean energy transition will no longer be limited by the slow innovation and turnover cycles of physical commodities and machines. Things move much more quickly in the digital space. Consequently, the transmission grid we've already got may have much more potential than we've given it credit for. But fulfilling that potential will involve pushing utilities to value getting more out of the transmission assets they already own. It's a fairly easy fix for a large impact. Biden should get on it. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. The most interesting attempt to assess the full benefits of GETS comes in a forthcoming report. Prepare for Brattle. The most interesting attempt to assess the full benefits of GETS comes in a forthcoming report prepared by Brattle for the Watt Coalition, a group of companies developing GETS. The study won't be released until February 24th, and unfortunately the folks at the Watt Coalition are too short-sighted to allow me to share the results in advance, grumble, grumble. I can say, though, that it is a detailed engineering analysis focused on a single wind-rich, increasingly congested transmission region. It examines the effects of a full deployment of GETs across the region. Long story short, GETs double the amount of new renewables the regional grid is able to accommodate through 2025. Building enough new power lines to do that would be wildly expensive and take decades. GETs do it almost immediately with an investment that pays itself back in about six months. It also creates jobs, reduces carbon emissions, and saves the region money. Greetings, faithful Volt readers. Welcome back to the transmission week that never ends. The news these last few days has been filled with talk about electricity grids. Texas is suffering from an unprecedented cold snap that has left more than 4 million people without power for days, 
It's a terrible situation. There's a lot to say about it, what can and can't be learned, and perhaps I'll get to it next week. But you didn't sign up for a breaking news email. You signed up for Volts. So today brings what I believe will be my last big transmission post, though I may do a wrap-up after this. Thank you for traveling with me on this longer-than-expected journey. Today, we're going to look at a couple of final ideas to make the transmission grid work better, short of building new lines, a remainder bin of grid-enhancing technologies, if you will. Idea 1. Using energy storage as a transmission asset. At least since the Energy Policy Act of 2005, the U.S. government has acknowledged that energy storage technologies can be used to ease grid congestion and increase the reliability and flexibility of energy transmission. In recent years, there has been increasing interest in storage as a transmission asset, or SATA, which refers to energy storage installations that are treated as transmission assets, meaning utilities can rate base them and receive a guaranteed rate of return, plus any tariffs or incentives for transmission assets. Basically, it means allowing some storage to be treated legally, financially, and operationally like a piece of the transmission system. SATA projects, sometimes known as virtual power lines, offer a range of benefits to regional energy grids. When a line is congested, it can offload some power to storage. At times of lower congestion, stored power can be injected to maintain high line utilization. Storage can thus relieve congestion and make the grid more reliable. It is much cheaper and quicker to deploy than new transmission, its footprint is much smaller, and it faces a much less onerous regulatory process. It is extremely modular and scalable, which means it can start small and be scaled up precisely to need, and even relocated as grid needs change. Congestion on a power line often causes inefficient dispatch, meaning grid operators must ask generators on one side of the line to curtail their output and generators on the other side of the line to ramp theirs up, even if that isn't the most cost-effective option. Storage on either side of the line can help reduce inefficient dispatch. Another key service storage can provide is to free up unused line capacity. A grid capacity standard called N-1 holds that the grid must maintain safe operation in the event of a contingency event that takes out one of the lines. This means all lines must maintain some reserve capacity to absorb energy in the event of an N-1 situation. But storage can serve that purpose, rapidly injecting energy into or absorbing energy from the grid in the case of a contingency event even better than power lines. Adding SATA projects can free up some of that reserve line capacity to carry more power. As with most things transmission, Europe is way ahead of the U.S. on this. Most notably, Germany is devoting 
1,300 megawatts worth of SATA in a project known as NetsBooster, or Grid Booster, to free up line capacity otherwise reserved for an N-1 contingency. Germany has notorious congestion between the wind-heavy north and load centers in the south. The U.S. has nothing at the gigawatt scale like that, but a few RTOs are moving forward. In August 2020, FERC approved MISO's proposal for the rules and processes by which it would integrate storage into its planning and project selection for transmission. One twist. FERC has indicated that it is, quote, permissible as a matter of policy, unquote, in the U.S. for a storage project to be dual use, to serve as a transmission asset and receive fixed returns and simultaneously to participate in wholesale energy markets and receive market returns. This move has drawn some criticism since it seems to blur the canonical separation between energy market participants and the wires companies that are supposed to offer them non-discriminatory access to the grid. If a wires company owns a storage asset that is drawing market returns, it has every reason to give that asset privileged grid access. FERC has said that dual use is subject to the following four principles. Quote, one must be cost competitive with transmission. Two must avoid double recovery for providing the same service. Three cannot suppress market bids and four cannot jeopardize ISO or RTO independence. Unquote. It's not entirely clear how dual-use storage could, in practice, avoid bumping up against those principles. So far as I know, none of the big RTOs or ISOs has yet hashed out exactly how to make the dual-use thing work. There are reasons to remain skeptical of SATA projects. Batteries are still relatively expensive compared to other types of transmission assets. Quote, many areas of congestion are better served by a new power plant, fuel cell, or demand response asset than a big single-purpose battery, unquote, says Cody Hill, who analyzes and deploys storage projects for LS Power. The California ISO has been skeptical, too. It reported in 2018, quote, Over the past several years, the ISO has studied 27 battery storage proposals and one pumped hydro storage proposal as potential transmission assets. To date, only two proposals have resulted in storage projects moving forward, both in the most recent 2017 to 2018 transmission plan, unquote. But utilities are allowed to rate-base SATA projects, receive a guaranteed rate of return on them, and they love rate-basing stuff, whether it's cost-effective or not. They make money by spending money. Quote, a company that gets a SATA project approved gets a guaranteed profit on every dollar spent, says Hill. Quote, so utilities have an obvious incentive to get lots of these projects approved and put into the rate base, and not much of an incentive to keep the cost down, Unquote. 
Hill warns that utilities are working in regulatory proceedings, quote, to guarantee that they will have a monopoly on new SATA projects going forward, unquote, sheltering them from competition under FERC Order 1000 the same way they've been sheltering transmission lines from competition. Quote, now that storage is getting cheap enough to pencil in in more locations, Hill says, this would be a terrible outcome for storage developers and utility customers alike, unquote. Hopefully, FERC will take steps to implement performance-based incentives for utilities and force true competitive bidding in both transmission and SATA, allowing merchant projects to compete on a level playing field. Here's what the International Renewable Energy Agency says is needed, quoting from its report. One, clear rules on the ownership and operation of the virtual power line. Two, compensation structures that reflect the costs of the virtual power line. Three, regulations enabling a multi-service business case so that the social welfare benefits provided by the energy storage is maximized. And four, regulations that enable network operators to consider battery storage systems in network planning together with conventional investments in network infrastructure." Unquote. The Energy Storage Association has laid out a set of positions and policy recommendations that get into more policy weeds explaining how FERC could meet those conditions. In the meantime, a 2020 study found that in a system with high renewable energy penetration, quote, storage value originates primarily from deferring investments in generation capacity and transmission. SATA can do that, make the existing transmission system work better, thus cutting down the need for new lines. Anyway, storage as transmission it's all part of the process of making transmission grids more networked, dispatchable, and intelligent. Idea number two, converting AC lines to HVDC lines. Finally, here at the very end, let's quickly look at a proposal that I probably should have put very first, since it may be the quickest and easiest way to boost transmission grid performance. Here's the idea. Existing alternating current, or AC lines, have already fought all the siting battles. The land has already been claimed. In some cases, it is possible to convert AC lines to high-voltage direct current, or HVDC lines. It turns out the actual wire used is the same. It just needs to be reconfigured. Quote, if you are using an existing corridor, you can use the existing lines and just change the bundles, says Dr. Liza Reed, research manager for low carbon technology policy at the Niskanen Center. Quote, so if you have three phases of four lines each, you've got 12 lines, and you can turn that into six lines on either side of the DC bipole. Unquote. In some cases, converting will mean slightly extending the height of the tower, but the costliest part is replacing AC substations with converters to shift the AC power to DC and vice versa, and in some cases, boosting the capacity of nearby substations to handle the additional power. Ideally, 
The new converters will be voltage source converters, VSCs, using solid-state electronics. Even with that cost, converting lines, quote, is surprisingly cost-effective even over relatively short distances and, in some cases, may be the only way to achieve dramatic increases in the capacity of existing corridors, unquote. That's the conclusion of a 2019 study on which Reed, who did her PhD dissertation on converting lines at Carnegie Mellon, was the lead author. In another study, Reed and colleagues looked at five options for expanding transmission capacity, reconductoring or replacing conductors to increase current, increasing voltage, installing a fax, you can see the previous post for more on that, converting to HVDC, and building a new line. Quote, in the normal course of operations, utilities have to replace lines as they age anyway, Reed told me. Quote, replacing lines with high temperature, low sag options can increase capacity quickly and at low cost compared to other solutions. The capacity increase is limited, but often still has substantial benefits to power flow. Unquote. Converting lines has been a subject of discussion among power engineers and scholars for decades, but as with previous technologies we've discussed, things are finally now beginning to come together. Costs are falling, even as grid congestion and the need for relief rise. Reed says it's difficult to pin down the total national potential of converting lines, since projects are so dependent on specific line conditions, which in many cases have not yet been analyzed. The most promising lines for conversion are double circuit, 345 kilovolt lines. The map below shows the roughly 25% of U.S. transmission circuit miles that are over 300 kilovolts. About two-thirds of those, something like 16% of total U.S. transmission, is suitable, at least in theory, for conversion. That's not going to solve U.S. grid woes, but it does represent a crucial opportunity to quickly expand the existing grid and relieve congestion while other solutions are being developed. And that's it, folks. Transmission. I can't guarantee I won't return to the subject in the future, but I think I've pretty much covered the waterfront. I hope it was helpful. Later this week, I'll send a transmission wrap-up post linking to all the previous posts in one place and summarizing what we've learned. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.